Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Beringer Ingelheim knows that every veterinary professional in practice has a wide variety of needs. That's why our Equine Veterinary Technical Solutions team, our VETS team, is here to provide education, product, and veterinary expertise, exceptional customer care, and regulatory stewardships. Our mission is to lead our veterinary community in technical knowledge and build a long-lasting relationship with our customers. To get in contact with one of our team members, please call us at 888-637-4251. Hi, I'm Mike Connell, and welcome to another episode of AAP Practice Life, talking about everyday or sometimes the business life of being an uh, equine practitioner. Today's subject is a really interesting one, and we've got a really amazing group of uh, practice owners. And we're going to talk about practice ownership. And we're really running the gamut from new practices to more established practices. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. We're going to start introductions. We're going to start on the West Coast. So I'd like to first introduce uh, Dr. Crystal McCrae. Crystal, welcome. Thank you. So glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about your practice. So my practice is four years old as of just last weekend. And strictly equine practice, focusing more into sports medicine these last couple of years. Currently, it's just me. I'm becoming quite maxed out. So starting to dive into the thoughts of hiring an associate and just seeing what that road might look like in the future. But for the most part, it's just me and the ambulatory truck. I do not have a haul-in facility. So I'm just giving you a warning right now, knowing the other guests here. I think your path may may or may not change. So we've got some really interesting <laughs> businesses. Uh, next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Tracy Walker. Tracy, welcome. Hi, how are you doing, Mike? Oh, I'm doing fantastic tonight. So, so tell us about your practice. You've got a really interesting practice. Yeah, so mine's a little different for the East Coast, but we've uh, I started my practice right out of school and after my internship in 2005, ran it for 10 years as um, exclusively ambulatory, uh, large animal but mostly equine. And then in 2015, I expanded that with a Holland facility and small animal practice. And to be fair to say during that first 10 years, I was also doing some small animal locum work and keeping up my skills there. So in 2015, when I expanded with that small animal practice as well and hired um, associates. So, so I now have, um, it's myself and one other associate uh, really should be probably three to four of us in the whole practice. I'd say we're doing probably 40% of our equine work is haul-in now, which is nice. And like I said, just myself and one other doctor, and we have two trucks in the building. Excellent. And going down the coast a little bit further, we have Dr. Lisa Kivett. Lisa, welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Tell us about your practice. Uh, So I own Foundation Equine Clinic in Southern Pines, North Carolina. I started the practice as a solo equine ambulatory practitioner in 2013. We are now a 3.25 doctor practice, and we're moving into a new facility this summer where we're going to start doing some more uh, referral and specialty type 
cases. I'm an internist for whatever it's worth. And my 0.25 is a surgeon. So we're looking forward to moving in that direction. Wonderful. And finally, Dr. Heather Kaplan. Uh, Heather, welcome and, and tell us about your practice. Thanks for having me. I am a two doctor practice. I started in 2014 as a solo ambulatory, you know, mostly equine. I would kind of see the occasional goat just because people would call. Now we're pretty much predominantly equine. And I just bought land uh, about three months ago and we're in the finalizing stages of design on a pollen facility with the anticipation of doing some small animal just to kind of pay the bills. So, right. So thank you. And thank you all for joining us. It really is the, the, the gamut from new practice, one vet to, uh, you know, an established facility and, and still growing. So the obvious question, and we'll start with you, Crystal, is why did you want to be a practice owner? I think, you know, it's hard enough being an equine veterinarian and then adding the stress of being a practice owner. So there's got to be a reason. Just being a person who's not afraid to work hard and being diligent. And uh, I wanted to reap the the financial benefits from that and also have the freedom to make my own schedule, ensure I could pick up my daughter from school. And if I wanted to be done working at one, I could, or if I wanted to take riding lessons in the morning, I could. Those things are getting harder to do as I'm getting busier and busier. But to start, it made a huge difference being able to be there for my family and take vacations when I when I wanted. But also the having the the financial benefit has been fantastic for all the hard work. Right. And how about yourself, Heather? Why why did you want to be a practice owner? I was kind of forced into the position. It was not my original plan. I had twins in March of 2014 and started my business in June of 2014. So um, my kids and my business grow together. So I was working for a small animal practitioner and I built his equine practice. And when I came back from my maternity leave, which was very short, he wasn't available for emergencies anymore. So I was hauling like two newborns in a minivan that only had one seat. So I'd have to put all the stuff in my own vehicle that I needed or that I thought I needed for an emergency and then drive to an emergency and hope that I had everything I needed. One of my clients at the time said, you should just do this on your own because you can. So here I am seven years later with two seven-year-olds and a seven-year-old practice. It's been good. So, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I did it looking back probably made some mistakes along the way. I'm sure we all have, but that's how you learn. Right. So, but it's a good venture for me so far. So. Interesting. So I'm starting to see a theme here. So Lisa, uh, share your story of why you said, yeah, I'm going to own my own practice. I mean, I just, I just like being a boss. (laughs) (laughs) But I I mean, (laughs) the slightly more detailed version is that I always knew I wanted to own a practice because I like being the boss. And like so many people, so after my residency, I went into private practice with one of those typical stories where the practice owner says that they will sell, but they will not ever sell. And so really liking where I lived, I just decided to strike it out on my own and see what happened. Yeah, I can sympathize with that because people ask me why I own a practice and I'm like, I'm a horrible employee. 
mean, I can't I, work for anybody I, else. I, I, I just, I'm, you would not want me as an employee. So by default, I've got to own a practice if I'm going to make a living. And, and Tracy, what about yourself? You know, they've kind of summed it up that it was all of the above or were there all the same spirit animals here. I wanted the freedom to be able to make decisions uh, on my own. If there was a piece of um, equipment I wanted to buy, you know, I, I didn't want to have to go through a, a purchasing board to make that decision. I just wanted to be able to make those financial decisions. I just really hadn't ever thought of doing anything else but owning the practice myself. And and I think I probably have a very dominant personality and, and tend to be in those leadership roles. And uh, so it was just, it was natural for me. So, I mean, starting your practice, well, I mean, we'll keep with you, Tracy, what did it take to start your practice? I mean, there's, there's financial considerations, legal considerations. What were the things that you had to deal with when you first started your practice? Yeah. I mean, when I started just the solo ambulatory, it wasn't too complicated. It was just a matter of um, getting some basic financing to get started in a vehicle. I think that's, there, there's something tasteful about doing that in, in the solo ambulatory because you can, you can step in a little easier and you don't have such a huge investment of overhead of a building. That planning was really done in a matter of a couple months for me. When I then switched over to expansion with the building, and I, Heather and I talk all the time and, she, and she's, she's in the middle of this now, but I mean, it was, it was a matter of probably two years. Still, everything happened pretty quickly. But, you know, when I finally made that decision, okay, I'm going to do something here. And it took a lot of, you know, creating a, a full business plan to be able to go get the banks competing for loans. It took getting radiation plans for the practice. You know, I had to get all those approved by, by all these, you know, and all, there were definitely lots of uh, different laws I had to deal with as far as state boards. What I didn't have in my area was in rural West Virginia, I didn't have a lot of uh, zoning laws. So so I didn't have to pick through that. I know Heather has had a little bit more of that in the Myrtle Beach area. I was fortunate that I didn't have a lot of code like that to deal with. I feel like we could do a whole podcast on I built a building. Mm-hmm. It's a whole thing. Yeah, I'm in the process of building a building right now. And uh, yeah, it's I'm, I'm learning things. Who knew there's so many tiles you can choose from? <laughs> Heather, what did you have to consider when you started your own practice? I went out and bought a truck and then used through a distributor some, you know, they allow you to spread out payments on, on all of your, you know, initial drug buys. And then I bought an x-ray machine because I felt like I needed that to start out. You know, I'd already had kind of an established clientele here. So I felt like x-ray was important and I could kind of wait on an ultrasound. and. I mean, that was kind of it. I sort of already had a client list built. So it was a matter of getting my phone number out to people and hitting the road. It's kind of the scary part of it because I look back that I wouldn't have been in a position to buy a practice at the time. And it was a pretty small investment to kind of get out and start as an ambulatory practitioner. Yeah, and I think it, having that background or just that familiarity of the area of having a client less, I, I guess, sure did help. It did. I mean, I moved here um, two years before that. So, it, you know, I basically spent those two years building those relationships. I think if I had to start fresh in a new area, it would have obviously been a little bit different. And Lisa, it sounds like you've, there's some parallels to uh, Heather's story too, but what were some of the things that you had to consider when you started your practice? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty similar to what they've said. 
the actual startup process was easier than I think I maybe had anticipated there. It wasn't that hard to set up the LLC and then it wasn't that hard to go through the board and, you know, set up the clinic name and had the first inspection, the distributors offering very generous terms on financing and initial order and the pharmaceutical companies that do new practice orders where it's like a buy one, get one. Heather, if nobody's mentioned it to you before, they'll do a buy one, get one again when you open your building. And yeah, so I, when I started my practice, I already owned an SUV. So I just used my existing truck. And then my all in sort of initial financial investment was like in 2013, it was like 30,000, 32,000. It was 2013. So I bought a used Scanex CR machine, which I don't think anyone could get away with anymore. And like Heather, you know, waited on the ultrasound and just kind of really got, you know, my feet underneath me first. But yeah, I mean, I don't think it was as bad as I thought it might be. How about yourself, Crystal? Yeah, very, very similar, but doing acupuncture and chiropractic, I started with those services. I had left a a previous practice and I had a non-compete, so I didn't I couldn't solicit anybody and because nobody else in that practice had done acupuncture and chiropractic, I was able to perform those services and then, but, you know, working far outside of the the radius of the non-compete was able to take advantage of the new practice programs uh, through distribution and pharmaceutical companies. And that was very helpful. And then I also got a 0% uh, business credit card with Chase and purchased my dental equipment on that. I had a small SUV and bought a used vet box from a local practice that was downsizing their fleet. I waited to buy the x-ray and ultrasound because I had talked to a couple of local uh, colleagues and they said that they would they would rent me their their imaging equipment. But, you know, doing that a few times, I just realized I've got to have this. So, um, you know, in order to, to proceed. So then I just financed it at zero money down and just decided to take the hit with that because it just allowed me to have better cash flow. Say the overall, what I borrowed from my personal pocketbook was probably, you know, $800 for the DEA license and business license and then just to get started, but wasn't too bad. So a bit of an open question, because it's a bit of a, a sensitive subject, so I don't necessarily need the details, but you know, one of the obvious questions that you, you hear from people about starting a practice is, uh, or you're buying into a practice or starting their own practice is, you know, they have substantial student debt. Uh, and then they're wondering, well, how am I going to uh, pay for a, a practice uh, when I have this debt? So I don't know if any of you uh, want to share a story, whether your own or somebody you know that has some experience on that. I mean, I'll share because I'm always an open book. I got lucky in that I went to school and probably all of us just a little bit before I think everything got really expensive. And I went to an in-state school. So when I graduated in 2007, my loans were about 100000 And then after an internship and a residency, they ballooned to like one seventeen because I deferred and deferred and deferred. But I think it's important just to mention that from personal experience and from looking at the data, you know, practice ownership allows people to make such a better living than an associate salary. And that pretty quickly, as soon as the practice is profitable, you can make 
much more money as a practice owner than you can as an associate. And I was able to really just start throwing money at my loans until I got down to, you know, I was able to consolidate a couple of years of my loans at like 2.8% interest. So like, I'm not paying that back early. So that's just simmering, but practice ownership has really been the key for me to just getting it paid off and feeling financially secure. Interesting. Anybody else have anything to share on that? Yeah. So I had a very different route. I, uh, when I graduated, I think same thing, you know, kind of before things got real crazy. I had no undergrad debt and my debt from vet school is about 70 some thousand. And I also was able to go to an in-state school and, and enjoy in-state tuition. Uh, completed my internship. I don't know what it ballooned up to, but after that, but I, I don't know that it did at all. I was able to lock in the loans at a time to, I think three, three or 3.5%. Once I returned home, that was the first years of the VMLRP, uh, the Veterinary Loan Repayment Program. And depending on where you are, you may or may not be familiar with that, but that is um, through the USDA federal government to fund areas of need that um, are underserved. And so I was willing to see, you know, cows and goats as I needed. And again, most of the business was by far equine, and that's 95% of what I do personally now. But but at the time, I um, was able to do that. They named a couple of counties in my practice area as those areas of need. And it was a three-year commitment, and it paid 100% of my school loans. And it just happened to be that it was 100% of my school loans, as I think the allocation was something like $25,000 a year. So after those three years, my school loans were paid. That made a big difference to have the paid off and, and, and literally be debt-free for a few years there before I was you know, then went into having the building. And those things are, the VMLRP is, is published every year, different counties of need, different uh, categories of need, as far as whether it's a government, whether they need a, a government position, whether they need a 80% bovine position, or whether it's a 30%. But there's a, the one in my area was 30% or something. I had to, I had to commit 10 or 20 hours a week within those counties serving those needs. And, and I was already doing that. So it really wasn't a big deal. And um, just, you know, paperwork and an application process. But it was, it, it turned out to be a great opportunity for me. Yeah. I'm just wondering how easy it would be uh, with some of the current debt loads. Some of the students are coming out though. Some of the numbers you hear are just astronomical. I had 165,000 when I started the practice. That's where I was kind of at kind of like Lisa, mine went up because I went on IBR for a couple of years and, you know, you're not even making the interest payments. In 2016, my husband and I got really angry at them and, and we paid them off in three years. I will say I was not paying myself a really big salary. Still to this day, I really don't. I, I'm at 60,000. I'll be honest about that. But again, with practice ownership, you know, the distributions and all that stuff help. But I don't know. I feel like we're taught that it's okay to have debt. And so people kind of get comfortable with, you know, having a hundred and two hundred and three hundred thousand dollars and like magically in 25 years it's supposed to disappear. For me, it was a mental struggle and I couldn't continue to carry it around. So we made a plan and stuck with it and since bought a house and paid off our house in a year and a half. So I mean, I think if you get angry enough about debt, you can make it go away. And practice ownership helps for sure. So I would agree too. We uh, refinanced my student debt right after I finished my internships and didn't realize that 
I was going to increase my my debt by forty or fifty thousand doing two internships and you know deferring because wasn't paying that close of attention I guess but um, deferred and then we refinanced and we just started paying on it and then it wasn't really until I started my own practice that we were able to make you know really big chunks throw it at it and we paid it off in February twenty twenty. So um it's exciting. Let's just focus a little bit. And Tracy, I'm gonna start with you just because you've been down this path a bit longer than the rest is how do you decide to expand or you know when do you hire your first associate? When do you decide that, boy, I want to build a facility. To be a, a practice owner, you've got to be a risk taker. But then this is it's one thing when you're controlling yourself then you've got to bring on other people. How, how did that go for you? Uh, for me, it was it was several things that contributed to that decision and very thought out. Uh, the main thing is I was tired of being on call by myself, you know, 10 years of it, eight, eight years at that point, tired of being on call by myself. I needed to hire help. To be able to hire help, I really needed to be able to expand the practice a little bit. I mean, I, I'm not in, you know, a heavily equine area, like, like some, some of these areas. So I needed to be able to diversify, I guess. The other thing was the realization that an ambulatory practice isn't worth much. I mean, let's, let's be honest. I mean, it's hard to sell that, you know, you're selling goodwill and, and we're all talking about how it's fairly easy to go start a solo ambulatory practice. So, you know, it's just really hard to sell that and have a lot of value to it. So, you know, that realization of, okay, what am I going to do with retirement? How am I going to look forward to this? And I was also tired of being out in the cold in West Virginia and, and being in the snow. And, and I, it's always been a practice dream for me to be able to have this haul-in facility in the middle of nowhere and offer these services that have been before this just not even available here. So, so all those things together, you know, I just finally sat down and said, this, this is going to have to happen. And if I want to be I'd even spoken to you at some point in there, you know, part of it was I sat down and looked at out of the gross, what was my net and what was I able to keep out of that? And basically that net wasn't enough. I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't where I wanted to be, wasn't where I was going to want to be for retirement. And so I had to work backwards from there and say, okay, so where, what do I have to get to, to produce, to be able to keep the net I want? That's how I ended up kind of backing into that decision, I guess. You made a plan. Yeah. How about yourself, Lisa? Tracy, that was really interesting because I wish I'd been that smart. (laughs) In the same vein, I I didn't want to be a solo practitioner forever. It's just not the thing that I saw myself doing. So I wanted to hire an associate as soon as I felt like I financially could. So I mostly, you know, worked my butt off and then looked at the net of the practice and critically evaluated how much I had to have just to you know, pay my own bills. And if there was enough left over that I could pay an associate, assuming they produced next to nothing just to get an associate in there and salvage my quality of life and bring me to a point where I'd be a little bit happier. That's what I did. So um, I hired my first associate uh, maybe like four years ago, I think now. And it took about three years for her to gross enough so that the practice was definitely production wise, a two doctor practice. And then of course, you know, thanks to 2020 and 2021 being like this insane year for veterinary medicine. Now I can have three plus that decision was a lifestyle choice for sure. 
And Heather, what was your uh, what was your just thought process in terms of growing, expanding, adding new associates, and investing in a facility? I would say adding the associate was quality of life, kind of like everybody else. I mean the the twenty four seven. I mean, I was lucky enough to have. There's a practitioner in our area that just does dentistry. And so he's actually who covered for me on my maternity leave. And he was covering for me, you know, kind of one weekend a month if I could get him. And it started to be where it was harder and harder to get him to cover for me. And I'd been looking, I mean, I I think I looked for almost a year and a half before I got an associate. And that was almost five years ago now. And I know it's even harder now. So for me, like adding the associate was quality of life. And the practice was growing enough and our practice area is pretty large and our county's not very developed. So getting from one side of the practice area to the other is, is pretty hard. And so that was actually kind of my, I'd, I'd been kind of toying with the idea of building, but uh, Dr. Hancock, who is an owner, previous owner of a large practice, you know, he had said to me, oh, you, you know, don't, don't build an ambulatory facility because all you'll be doing is writing out checks every month and you'll be sitting at your kitchen table, like, you know, trying to figure out how to make payroll and you have a really good practice. And so it was kind of nice to see somebody that had kind of made it and done it, you know, basically turn to me at, I think I was three years into practice and say, you know, you know, you've kind of made it, you have a really good practice here and your clients are really great. And, and so it was really good. And I think I kind of like held on to that advice of not to build but I had one Saturday where I had two colics that I was running fluids to on complete opposite sides of my county. And I got another call for a foal that had been kicked. And I'm like, you know, something's not going to get seen. And unfortunately it was the foal. And I don't really know how either of those two horses made it. I don't like to leave horses on fluids at farms. And so I think that was kind of my, okay, this is my, you know, I really need to have a facility and my associate does a lot of breeding work. Um, and so she's, you know, every morning running from barn to barn to barn, trying to get mares checked and bred and all that. And so I think I'm probably starting smaller than other people would, but I'm, again, the debt scares me. So I'm building with room to grow, but not building crazy to start. So, And, and so Crystal, you're sort of at this precipice of where to go next. And I don't know if these stories inspire you or terrify you. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a mixed, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like it's a, it's a good thing to, you know, get regain a quality of life and, you know, being able to share call would be, would be excellent. I mean, I'm also in the throes of, we, we have a 20 acre a uh, piece of land that we just bought with a really old farmhouse and a, a little barn that needs a lot of help. But I'm going to start with that and pour some cement and, you know, be able to put in a pad so that I can jog out the horses and have Hollins come in. And And I think it'd be nice to have an associate to to help me. I'm just, I guess I'm just fearful of having to manage people depending on them and then they leave and then you're, you know, if they're, if they're not happy or whatever, but, but you know, it's a leap of faith. So yeah, it sounds like it's overall pretty beneficial. Yeah. Mike, one thing I might add to all this, and especially Lisa kind of made me think of it as one of the reasons for, for me in my area to add the small animal section of the hospital was again, that diversification and it is allowed me to compete with the salaries, you know, that when you're talking about a starting salary of an equine practitioner, 
to find someone now who's willing to do some mixed animal. I mean, which is, that's a whole other ball of wax in itself, but you know, I can compete with six figures of, of what small animal practices are offering. And in the same respect, I can afford a lot of toys, you know, endoscopy, you know, all these different things that I, I wouldn't normally have if I had stayed with a very strict equine practice for my area, for, for my, you know, economics here. So as we're describing it, it's, it's a very, like, I haven't heard any negatives of practice ownership and it's, we've been painting a very uh, lovely picture of it, but as a practice owner, as we're talking about, I'm just thinking of the countless sleepless nights, thinking about things, worrying about things. And, uh, the gray hair came by honestly sometimes, but so Lisa, let's start with you. So like, what's been your biggest challenge being a practice owner? To your point, I do still, and I'm actually curious to know if anyone else, I imagine everybody still feels this way, but I still have these moments of like, if we are a little bit slow, you know, that like, oh my God, we're all going to starve. And I'm completely convinced that like everything is going to be toast and like, I don't know, it's just all going to be gone. It doesn't I go just, away. I keep trying to tell us that. <laughs> we all lived through 2008, right? So we lived through 2008, right. 2009, and it was scary. So, so not as practice owners. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> have all that in my head. And so I think dealing with that, you know, sense of responsibility can be a lot. It's getting a little easier. And then, you know, the biggest challenge of practice ownership, I would say, is HR. Because it's like, it's really hard to learn to manage yeah. people. 100%. 100% with Lisa on that. Um, the, the biggest problem I have is human resources. I love my staff. I have a great staff right now, but no matter what, it's always something. And, and Crystal, to what you were alluding to, you know, there's that fear of just when you feel like you've got the greatest team in the world, one of them leaves. What, you know, I had two leave in the last month. One of them moved away. One of them doesn't need to work. You know, I mean, it's just, it, it wasn't for anything that I've done or not done. It's just the way it goes. Trying not to take that personally is is hard. Mm -hmm. It's it's really it's yep. hard. It's lonely at the top. <laughs> Someone said to me, "It's lonely at the top." I think like <laughs> when I started and it was just me and my assistant in the truck, I kind of felt like I had control of everything. I knew all the calls that came in, and you know all the things that went out, and and everything that happened happened between me and my assistant. And now I have four staff and an associate, and so communication is really, really hard, you know, and, and control and relying a little on bit. Practices. Yeah. Yes. Right. And giving up mm -hmm. control, you know, and, and I don't know a lot of our clients anymore either. You know, there's people that I've never, ever seen and it's really weird. So yeah. It's weird for me too. Yeah. I'd say delegating for me. And then, but then once I delegate it, then I tend to kind of just let it go and then assume that it's going to get done well. And then I come back realizing like, Oh my God, is not right, you know. So, yeah, delegate, letting go. Yes, and trusting other people to do it. So, Tracy, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you started your practice? I tell you one thing. I, I think I still underestimated, and I and I knew it was going to be an issue, but didn't know how much. Is it's just how much time out of the day that practice management can take. I, I think we all know. It, oh, okay, I'm going to have to spend this much time doing the books or whatever. It. It's amazing how it does become its own monster, you know, that I've got to practice. My right-hand person that was my right-hand tech, you know, became the practice manager. She's been with me, you know, 15, 16 years at this point. I have another uh, gentleman who's been a really great technician, has now been with me five years. 
And when I kind of laugh and ask ourselves, like, what are they doing in a day? She spends the whole day doing bookkeeping. I mean, you know, when I think back to the days when I started the practice and our drug bills were two, three thousand, four thousand a month, and they're thirty five thousand dollars a month now. I mean, it's it's just overwhelming what all that takes and kind of what to Heather, you know, was saying and that you, I don't even know half the names that are coming across the desk of this person needs this. And so I guess to that effect, I mean, things that I need time off to do just practice management stuff, whether it's making a phone call, whether it's, we're trying to get the parking lot paved and trying to meet with the guys about where to pave the parking lot. I mean, it's really, really hard to do that because also for the practice owners, And I'm sure this is like this for you guys in your practice, your clients want to see you and not the associate and not someone else. And so, you know, there's only so many appointments available to be able to fulfill that and be able to try to keep, you know, some of these decisions moving. Tracy, you just made me realize I forgot to call the guy who's making the small doors. (laughs) (laughs) See? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. All those things, you know, one of my, my assistants asked me the other day, he said, well, what can I help you with today? And I was like, oh, I don't know. And then I sat down and within 10 minutes reeled off like 15 things that I was like, I need you to call this person and set this up and this person and set this up. And I'm headed on the truck, you know, (laughs) I was like, bye. (laughs) How about yourself, Lisa? What do you know now that you wish you knew then? I mean, I guess I'll echo my previous point is that I wish I knew when I started that it was going to be okay even though I still feel like it might not be okay. So, yeah, I mean, just, just knowing that like, it's going to be fine probably would have been the biggest help. Yeah. But you never know. I mean, only experience teaches you that. So yeah. How about yourself, Heather? Gosh. I mean, I feel like the first couple of years of ownership were a blur. I mean, with kids and I was taking care of my mom who had dementia. So I think like, (sighs) I wish that I hadn't lost, myself. I feel like I dived so deep into that. I had to like keep getting in the truck and keep going somewhere. And I had absolutely no boundaries whatsoever because I was so worried about being able to pay for everything. And I was so worried that, you know, it wouldn't exist anymore. You know, kind of that feeling that, you know, I think I lost, you know, you sort of joke, like, you know, you lose some years of your life. Like, I kind of felt like I lost some years of my life in those first couple of years because I was just so worried that I had to make money, you know, to survive. So my associate has been amazing in sort of helping us make more and more boundaries. Sometimes they're too firm for me, but they've been, you know, kind of making, you know, we joke about the boundaries, I guess, but making those boundaries and kind of sticking with them and, and making them true policies within your practice so that it doesn't matter who calls, you know, they get the same answer basically. So again, it probably comes back to that HR. um, So probably setting up more of that HR earlier on um, and and having real policies in place that, you know, again, when it was me and an assistant in a truck, I didn't really think I needed. So how about yourself, Crystal? What has experience taught you? All the adjustments that we had to make last year kind of forced me out of the doing everything myself role and allowing somebody, one of my assistants to become, you know, start doing receptionists and scheduling work and pretty fearful of it, of handing that over. But it, we just grew exponentially once I 
allowed her to do that. And I wish that I would have had an administrator receptionist in my life earlier in the practice to help me kind of reclaim a bunch of those, you know, 3 a.m. where I wake up heart pounding, got to, you know, figure out all these things. And, you know, I haven't worked on the schedule for the next week. And, you know, what are people, you know, how am I going to fit everybody together? And having that position filled really gave me a lot of life back. And then the other thing that having, you know, not having any childcare for last year forced me to realize is, you know, drawing those boundaries, like Heather was mentioning, but that I could actually work three days a week. And because we just tell people, no, we're not in your region until, you know, this day, you know, you get on the book or not, that we were super efficient. And um, even with just going, going from, you know, five days spread all over the place to three days really organized, we still grew exponentially. That was an incredible realization. So I guess the having the administrator to, to help keep organization is super helpful. I have one last question. It's a question that came to me as we were talking. So the question is, I just, you know, we, we talking a lot about our businesses and what we've learned about our businesses, but what has the experience of practice ownership taught you about yourself? It is a journey being a practice owner. And I, I, I can, I have plenty of examples for myself, but Tracy, I'm, I'm going to go with you because just because you've owned the practice the longest. I mean, what has practice ownership taught you about yourself? I think that we can withstand a lot more stress than what we think and persevere uh, through things. I mean, you know, we're all kind of talking about these stressful moments, but gosh, maybe some of us thrive better in that kind of stress. I mean, I'm, I'm the type that truly, as much as I torture myself with it, I'm, I'm a much happier person when I'm moving forward with with projects and always always moving forward with things. And, and I, it may be stress to an extent is a good thing to, to keep us thinking and moving forward. You know, I, I mean, just like for me now, I mean, I can't just seem to be happy with the successful practice I've got. I've, I'm looking at buying the building next door and expanding into that. I mean, wh- why do I do that to myself? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> but I do. <laughs> you know? So I, I feel like I've definitely that I just know that I'm that way now, you know, have to make my decisions accordingly, I guess. I think practice ownership has taught me a remarkable amount about myself. I think one example that comes to mind is I did a leadership course where we did a DISC personality test, and it was this uh, sort of revelation for me that I am a particular personality type and that not everyone is like that and that different people are different. And I should really learn to accept other people's differences and what motivates them and what drives them and stop just thinking that the answer to everyone's problems is just be like me. And it's really, really helped a lot. I feel like I've learned a lot about myself and I've grown a lot and I'm so much more uh, empathetic and understanding of other people and I appreciate them more. That's nice. That's really great. How about yourself, Heather? What have you learned about yourself as a practice owner? I feel like I have more patience than I ever thought I would. Um, And I feel like I'm a very fair leader. I think I've worked for a lot of blow up type personalities. And I I think that that helped me learn that that's not how I wanted somebody to react to me. And so I try not to be that way to somebody else and, you know, kind of mistakes are made and, you know, and, and move on and, you know, fix it. I think 
patience. I think practice ownership has kind of taught me how to take a deep breath and process before I move on. And I feel like I, I am a good a good leader and a fair leader. And I, I like, I guess, being in charge for whatever that means. So, right. Crystal, last word is yours. What have you learned as a practice owner about yourself? Well, maybe not so much learn, but it's become very apparent that I, I can just thrive in a level of chaos, that I enjoy a bunch of things going on at, you know, a certain, you know, all at the same time. And being able to balance all of that and and just getting to to know the staff and feel like it's it's my ability to make them feel good and appreciated and um, being polite to them and you know just trying to be very aware of how I am affecting somebody else. I guess being empathetic towards you know how they might be feeling when they're working with me and trying to make sure that. Even when I am in my world of chaos, trying to make them feel like they've done a great job. And then I've also learned a lot about the management and the bookkeeping and and things like that. And I'm actually a little bit more data oriented than I thought I was previously. So I'd like to thank all of you for uh, joining tonight. This, This is, you know, really digging deep into the minds of practice ownership, I think there's a lot of benefits. Uh, I don't know if it's for everybody, but I think as as listening to the four of you speak, there's definitely a common theme going through a bit there. So really, I hope uh, this gives some inspiration to others and, and uh, you know, because it is a, a topic that a lot of people ask about. And so I think your information is, I think you're going to benefit a lot of uh, AAP members. So thank you very much. Thank you for having us, Mike. Hey, Mike, do we need to mention that boys can start practices too? You know, I was putting this together. And I'm like, boy, this is really female dominant. And I'm like, I'm, yeah. So yes, anybody can. It's important. hundred <laughs> percent, whether it's the demographics of our profession right now, but hundred percent. Yes. Thank you. All right. Have a great evening. Thanks all. Thank you. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org. Beringer Ingelheim knows that every veterinary professional in practice has a wide variety of needs. That's why our equine veterinary technical solutions team, our VETS team, is here to provide education, product, and veterinary expertise, exceptional customer care, and regulatory stewardships. Our mission is to lead our veterinary community and technical knowledge and build a long-lasting relationship with our customers. To get in contact with one of our team members, please call us at 888-637-4251.